Well, it is always a pleasure to be with you all and opening up God's Word, especially as today we're studying the, the fourth solo of the Reformation, that we're looking at Christ alone. And it is just a tremendous privilege to say that. It's, it's such a foundational principle to the rest of the solas. And I think it, it is, uh, yeah, the most foundational principle to the Reformation is Christ alone. Now, that is not to say that all the other solas that we study for so far are less important. I mean, if it wasn't for Scripture alone, we would miss a life-saving message of the gospel. If it wasn't for faith alone, we try to earn our own way into heaven out of our own merits. And if it wasn't for grace alone, we would be hopeless, facing certain condemnation because of our failure to live up to God's righteousness. But praise God for these biblical teachings that we have in the five souls. What a relief it is to our souls that we can trust in God, in, the, in God's word, that we could trust in God for the salvation that he has given us. And it's not because of our own works, not because of, of that we earned our way to God, but it's because of God's grace that we can believe in this gospel and have eternal life. Now, these aren't merely these they're not these abstract theological ideas. Right? These, these five solas are not here either just to make us feel good. Other religions have that. Every religion has its promises. Every religion claims that it could offer you some sort of salvation or some sort of peace. So what makes Christianity different? Why can I say that I'm saved by grace through faith? Why can I have this confidence that when I die, I'll see my Savior face to face? It is because of the person of Jesus Christ. It is because Christ is at the very center of all these solas that I have confidence in my salvation. Scriptures point to Christ. The object of our faith is Christ. The means of grace is through Christ. And the only way you could behold the glory of God and the only way you could live for the glory of God is in Christ. Now you take out Christ, you lose the Reformation. You take out Christ, you don't have a gospel. You're without hope and all you have is an empty promise. Now this goes to the very heart of the Reformation. You see, in the Reformation, they were dealing with these false teachings about Christ. That, that the, the Catholic Church, although they affirmed the deity of Christ, they did say that Christ is the Son of God, that he is God himself, but practically, they did not hold to the sufficiency of Christ. According to Catholic doctrine, Christ's death pays for the eternal punishment of the sinner. But sins, the sins are not actually forgiven until the sinner participates in what's called sacraments, until the sinner does some kind of outward external act. So what does this effectively do? What, is the, what does the Catholic Church, and especially true during the time of Reformation, what does it do to the work of Christ? Well, it minimizes it. It says that Christ did not do enough on the cross, that there's something missing in what Christ did on the cross, that we need to provide what's missing. And if it minimizes the work of Christ, this ultimately minimizes the person of Christ. We cannot separate those two. 
the person of Christ and the work of Christ go hand in hand. One of my favorite theologians and uh, preachers, Michael Reeves, put it this way. He was talking about Christ and he said this, who he is entirely shapes what it is that he offers in the gospel. The person of Christ shapes the work of Christ and the nature of the gospel of Christ entirely. Who he is shapes the gospel. Who Christ is shapes what his work is. To deny Christ, to say that his work is insufficient, is ultimately to deny the fullness of his deity. And denying what he has done practically denies who he is, denies his very person. And this is what the reformers were fighting against. This is why they stood for Christ alone. Because it is not only revealed in the scriptures, but it glorifies Christ. Now, why do we need to hear this today? We're not under the Roman Catholic Church. Why is this Reformation principle of Solus Christus relevant to us? Well, I, could, I could think of two reasons. Uh, the first reason, we need to be reminded as often as possible who our Savior is, of what he has done. We often need to go back to the foot of the cross and look up at Jesus. Jesus is a man. Jesus, the eternal God, who is fully God. Jesus, who is the creator of the universe, as we read today in, in, our, in our Bible reading, Colossians 1. This eternal word, he died on the cross, taking up on himself your sins and my sins. If he is truly God, he's truly man, what else could you add to his work? What, what is lacking in what Jesus did? What else do we need? All we need is Jesus. That's it. Because he is our perfect salvation. Nothing is missing in that redemption. We can do nothing else but wholly trust in Jesus' name. We need to be reminded of this. And the second reason why Christ alone is so relevant to us is because these heresies are still being taught. You look at the different cults, different religions of the world, secular philosophy, what you see is that they deny Christ's deity and that they reject God's perfect atoning work on the cross. And we need to make sure that we are rooted in that truth of the gospel, that we are rooted in the truth of who Christ is and what he has done. And so this is what I'll be reading this morning. In Colossians 2, verse 8 through 15, is our text for this morning. And here Paul teaches this very principle of Christ alone. I'm not preaching Christ alone just because this is a reformation. I'm preaching Christ alone because this is what it means to be a Christian. Let's read our text. Colossians 2, verses 8 through 15. Paul writes, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him, you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him, you were also circumcised. Was a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ? 
having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Pray with me. Father, there's such, such deep truth here, such truth that goes down to the very heart of our own salvation. And it, it, is, it is a weighty matter to preach. It is a weighty matter to listen to and to evaluate and, and to apply to our own lives. And I ask you, Lord, that you would help us to do that now. Help us to do that as we read your word and as we see your son being glorified, as we see your son being exalted, that we would just be drawn closer to him. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this passage is really at the heart of the epistle to the Colossians. And as you kind of see in verse 8, there is something going on in the church in Colossians. There is this false teaching that was spreading there, and the false teaching really attacked Christ. And so throughout the book of Colossians, Paul is telling them that they need to look at Christ as the supreme Christ, as a supreme God, that he is supreme in all things. And it is difficult to say exactly what these, teach, what these false teachings included. We know it obviously attacked the person of Christ, but Paul never really lays it out. He never says, this is what we're dealing with here. It's kind of understood by Paul, and it's kind of understood by the readers, but we aren't, we aren't given uh, really anything concrete. But there are some indications. If you go to chapter 2, verse 16, just go down a few verses, Verse 16 through 23, he starts, Paul starts to describe the various errors. And we're not going to read through it, but this false teaching included different elements of pagan worship. It included things like self-abasement, self-mortification. included observing pagan uh, religious rites and Jewish laws. And so throughout the book, Paul is dealing with this. And the way he's encouraging the Colossians is by magnifying, magnifying Christ as a creator. Paul magnifies Christ as the head of the church. Paul says that Christ is above all rulers and authorities. Let's just take this short sampling of, of different verses. Colossians 2.3, in whom, in Christ, are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2.10, in him you have been made complete in Christ. In Colossians 3.11, Christ is all and in all. Now, nowhere else do we see the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ so focused. And our passage today is no exception. Paul is warning the Colossians to beware of these false teachings. And he encourages them by teaching them about our great Savior. He presents reason after reason why they don't need to give any consideration to this false teaching, all they need to do is remain fixed on who Christ is 
and what he has done. And so for us this morning, we will see two reasons why we can trust in our all-sufficient Christ. Two reasons why we can continue to trust in our all-sufficient Christ. And it really goes down, it's very simple, the person of Christ and the work of Christ. The person of Christ and the work of Christ. Now we are going to spend more time on the person of Christ. The work of Christ, we were, we're going to sum up, that'll be the verses 11 through 15, and we're going to sum that up, but I really want to spend the time on who Christ is. Because if you understand who Christ is, if you understand how sufficient and how complete he is, then you understand how perfectly sufficient the work of Christ is. They go hand in hand. And so the Bible teaches that Jesus is God, and that's what we're going to see. And if God, and, and, and for God, nothing is impossible. Your salvation is secured by faith and the sacrifice of the eternal Son of God, then all we have to do is believe in Jesus. And he is God. He's going to save us. It's, it's simple. I mean, Romans says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and, believe, Lord and Savior and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. It's a simple message. And so that's what we're going to look at. And now we're going to look at the person of Christ. It is a simple message. But how often the simplicity gets distorted? False teachers who, who cannot let go of the bride, who rather hang on their sin rather than go to the Savior, they start mucking up this gospel. They start adding works. The gospel is too simple. It's, it's, it's too, too pure. Surely we have to play a part in our salvation, they'll say. Surely it can't all be Christ. we got to do something to it. Well, this is what the church at Colossians was dealing with. And look at verse 8. This is where we start. And what we're going to see is that the person of Christ, through the contrast of false teaching, is highlighted. And Paul first addresses it by the distortion. He addresses the distortion of this false teaching plaguing the Colossian church. And he says in verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. So Paul's telling them to be aware. Keep your eyes be peeled. Be ready that for something that's hazardous. Something's coming and you need to be on alert. And the tense here carries a sense of, of uh, con con continuation. So a believer must be continually on alert, continually watching. But what is it that he needs to be watching for? Well, verse 8 says it, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty secession. Paul's telling the church that these false teachers, through their philosophy, is trying to take captive the precious saints of the church. In other words, they're trying to kidnap believers. They're trying to take them from the safety of truth and trying to enslave them to error. I remember I was uh, watching this old spaghetti western with my dad. If you don't know what spaghetti westerns are, it doesn't actually have spaghettis. These, these westerns were... It's a very typical kind of Western scene where bandits are running in into this town. They're, sh they're shooting guns. They're causing havoc. And I remember seeing this, this one bandit has, uh, kind of have a lasso. Get a guy by the shoulders, drag him, and then the horse runs away, dragging the guy behind him. I mean, these people in the city had no idea what was coming. It's just all these bandits coming, and then all of a sudden, 
taken away, dragged away. And I think this is the picture we could imagine that Paul's getting at here. That there is these heretical bandits, that there, there are these false teachers trying to come into the church, and with their philosophical guns blazing, they're trying to pull Christians away through this false teaching. Now, what exactly are they teaching? Uh, it's, it's hard to say. Like I said, we're not given a whole lot. We can see that it's a, a mix of pagan and, and Jewish traditions. But, but we do know a couple things. And first, the, the first thing that we're, we're told in verse 8 is that the, these teachings of false teachers were empty. Paul calls the philosophy that they're using empty deception. That is, that the empty deception is that they're, they're devoid of any intellectual, moral, or, or any spiritual value. They're, they're empty. There's no, no truth behind them whatsoever. And Paul's not saying that philosophy is bad in itself. I mean, philosophy is just a love of wisdom. That's all philosophy means. But if you take philosophy coming from the wrong place, love, wisdom coming from the wrong place, then you start to get error. And this is where this philosophy comes from. Look at verse 8. It says, The philosophy and empty deception, and it gives us two sources. According to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world. So there's two sources, and this is where philosophy runs into trouble. Whenever we begin to give priority to this philosophical musings of men over the, the word of God, over the truth of Scripture, then we eventually are being pulled away. We are being captive by this error. And Jesus dealt with this. Mark 7, 8. After Jesus points out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, he says to them, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. Now what was it that the Pharisees were doing exactly? Well, they just disregarded what God has said. They substituted what God has said, what what. God has revealed in the scriptures for the legalistic laws of their fathers, for the laws that have been handed down to them from previous generation. And I believe that this form of Judaism started out well. I think they wanted to, to follow God's word, but these laws quickly became about pride. It quickly became about appearing righteous and thinking that they are righteous through these external acts. What we get is legalism. And Paul recognized that this philosophy is not only from the traditions of men, but it's also according to the elementary principles of the world. That's your second source. So philosophy is from traditions of men, and we see some philosophy from the elementary principles of the world. Now, uh, this is a difficult phrase. Uh, commentators are, are split at exactly what it means. But we could do a quick study. If you were to look, and we're not going to do it now, actually. But if you were going to do, if you're going to look at Galatians four nine and Colossians two twenty, Galatians four nine and Colossians two twenty, they use the same wording, and what we see there is that this elementary principles of the world reveals that this philosophy is returning to something rudimentary. Is returning to something so basic. It's returning to something that does not lead to spiritual maturity. And in the case here, in the case of Colossians, it's returning to the law. 
is returning to trying to keep laws, trying to keep Sabbaths and Passovers, trying to keep circumcision, all for trying to get salvation. And all that work is not adequate. It has no substance, Paul says in verse 17. It is only a shadow of what has come. It is only a shadow of Christ. And this philosophy, this philosophy which comes from traditions of men, this philosophy that is, is going backwards to the rudimentary things of the world, is, is taught all around the world today. You see, religions and cults, they, they teach that you're going to have to do some external act to justify yourself before God. And this is what you get when you, when you stray away from the truth of Scripture, when you go away from the person of Jesus Christ, all you're left is with your own strivings, with your own um, external acts. And it's legalism. And you can't get there. It becomes quickly inadequate. And we see the sipping in the church today. Coming to church won't get you into heaven. Being baptized by water, that act in itself does not get you into heaven. Got to watch out for this tradition of men. Because this tradition of men that teaches that you could get to heaven without Christ is actually in opposition to Christ. Look at the last phrase in verse 8. Well, Paul says that this philosophy is according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. And the Greek is very emphatic, very not according to Christ. And this is a real issue, isn't it? When we start looking at these philosophies, when we start looking at these false teaching, the real issue is that it, it, it opposes Christ. It goes against who Christ is. And also note in, in verse 8 that it is not, Paul's not saying that it's going against Christian doctrine. Paul's not saying that this, this false teaching is going against um, even the teachings of Christ. Paul says that it goes it is not according to Christ. It is not according to the person of Christ. And this is what makes this false teaching so dangerous. And so Paul picks this up. Paul ex explodes with, with Christology here. And in verse 9, he, he builds off uh, that uh, off that saying of that where that uh, the the philosophy is not according to Christ. And verse 9, he starts off with four. He says, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So Paul right here, he's using that word for to begin with, and that's giving the basis. He's giving the, the reason why these teachings are not according to Christ, why these teachings are in opposition to him. And this verse is very pregnant with meaning, very explosive for the believer. It is incredibly clear that Paul through the Holy Spirit, in that verse is writing about the deity of Christ, about the very nature of Christ. And there is no escaping this teaching. There is no avoiding what Paul is saying here. So let's look at it a little carefully, see what is it that, that Paul is, is saying about this false teaching, that it doesn't line up with Christ. So Paul starts off, for in him, talk about in Christ, that is in the emphatic position. Is, he is focusing on Christ, and in him is speaking about the very nature of Christ. In Christ, in him, 
all the fullness of deity dwells. Now, this is not saying that Jesus is just godly. This is not saying that Jesus has merely the qualities of God. That's a different word. That's a different word for that. What Paul uses here is a very specific word. Paul's saying that in Christ dwells the fullness of divine nature. In Christ is the sum total, the full measure of the state of being God. Jesus is fully God. Now, why did Paul mention this here? Why did he just insert such a powerful statement about Christ's person? I think it's because a false teaching goes directly against this crucial doctrine. If Christ is fully God, if, if, if Christ has a fullness of deity, then that means there is nothing you could do to add to his offer of salvation. If Christ is completely God, you can't seek salvation by doing some kind of external act, which is what this false teaching was, was, was telling the Colossian church. And we see this earlier in the epistle. We read it today, Colossians 1.19. Just look over there, just on the other side of the page, or maybe a page back. Colossians 1.19, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through whom I say whether things on earth or, th or things in heaven. There is, there is a reason why Paul teaches salvation immediately following the deity of Christ. It is only God that can save man. It is only God who can bear the full penalty of sin. It is only God who can, who can live a perfect life, not a life that's just absent from sin, but a life that's full of the righteousness of God. And it is only God that can be that perfect sacrifice so that you would have full forgiveness. It takes God to have salvation. And this God is Christ Jesus our Lord. Now you can be confident in your salvation today, not because of what you've done, not because you're, you're in church today, not because of what you haven't done, because of the sins you haven't done or because of the good works you've done, you could be confident in your salvation because you could be confident in Christ, that he is fully God and he has the power to save. Now, we could also deal on that flip side. What about losing your salvation? What does Christ's deity have to do with losing your salvation? Well, you cannot lose your salvation because of what you have done or what you haven't done. That's the same problem. Your salvation is a gift of God given to you in Christ. You do nothing to earn it, and you can do nothing to lose it. Now, we, I think we, we still have to be careful here. Uh, I don't want to say that, that this teaching gives you doc, a license to whatever you want. Uh, there, is, there, is, there does have to be a fruit of the Spirit there. Uh, there is a fruit that's coming from being part of the vine of Christ. But even that is all from God. It, it all stems, it all originates from Christ himself. So now we still see, we still have to see that if we are, um, oh, I'm sorry, are we without going backwards here? Uh, the, the truth doesn't give us license to do whatever we want, but, but we stand firm in Christ. Now, 
Let's go back to verse 9. Paul continues in verse 9 to say that Christ is God, and a very important phrase comes after that. He says, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells, and it says, in bodily form. Now, this is incredibly important to the Colossians, because the Colossians were facing this false teaching, uh, this, this form of dualism, which essentially says that any material body is evil. And so if a material body is evil, then Christ could not have had a, a real body. He, he could not have become in the flesh. But Paul says that the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He must have a physical body. We read in John that, this is, that Christ is the eternal word who became flesh. That this is the, the God who became man, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard, regard equality to God as a thing to be grasped, but empty himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in likeness of man. This Christ is fully God and fully man. Now, both those things together are crucial for your salvation. If, God, if Christ is fully God and fully man, he is therefore the perfect mediator between man and God. This man, Christ Jesus. Because he is fully man and he is fully God, he is our high priest. And he was tempted, but because he is fully God, he was tempted without sin and now comes to the aid of those who are tempted. See, this is our Savior. This is our Lord. This is our God, Jesus Christ. It requires both things. He needs to be fully God and fully man. Now, I, I know what, what I just said, it's, it's, it's a lot of theology. Um, but I'm not saying theology for theology's sake. I, I don't want to come up here and, and give a theology lesson. Neither am I saying that what, I, what I'm trying to teach here, it, it, what, I, what I'm teaching from Scripture, is not purely intellectual either. Who Christ is directly imp impacts your salvation. To deny his deity or to deny his humanity leaves you without a savior. This is why Colossians 2.9 is so important. Because a false teaching that has come to the Colossians and the false teaching that we see around us denies this of Christ. And that, their Christ, that false gospel they teach, does not offer any salvation. The only true salvation is found in Christ. And Paul makes a connection. Look at verse 10. Paul makes a connection between the person of Christ and the person found in Christ. Now verse 10. Verse 10 says, And in him... You have been made complete. Now, if you have the ESV, you can kind of see that play on words. What does verse 9 say? Verse 9 says, For in him the fullness of deity dwells. And, the, and verse 10, In him you have been made, ESV, full. It's the same word just being used as a verb in verse 10. That we have been made full, that we have been made complete. Now, what does that mean other than there was a point in time where we were incomplete, right? There was a time where, where we were lacking much. And think about where you were before Christ. Before Christ, we lacked fellowship with God. And we read in Ephesians that we are cut off from God, cut off from his promises. Before Christ, we lacked understanding. 
Ephesians tells us again that we were darkened in understanding, that we were walking in the futility of our minds. And before Christ, we lacked freedom from sin. In fact, we were slaves to it. But how great is it to be made complete? To function how we are created to do, to, to lack nothing in Christ. And if you ever had to function at a partial capacity, I mean, you know how ineffective you could be, right? If you're incomplete, let's say you're sick. If you're sick, you, you know you, you can't do everything that you used to do. I mean, there, there are, I don't get sick very often, but there are times when I've been sick and I'm just like, I just got to stay in bed. Uh, I'm incapacitated and I'm just going to rot in bed. Um, but once I take that medicine, hopefully, uh, hopefully it works, and, and once I get my rest and my body is recovered, then I feel I'm 100% again. I could, I could get to the work that I need to do. And that's really what God did to us spiritually. Before God, we were sick. We had this great infirmity. Our sin made us sick. And he made us complete. Notice the verb, the verb in verse 10. It is God who made us complete. We didn't do it ourselves. Verse 10 says, have been made complete. It is, it is passive, something that was done to you. God made you complete. And in, in the original language, it, it emphasizes something that was done in the past with continuing results. So God made you complete in the past. When did that happen? Well, he made you into a new creation in Christ. Right, right at conversion. At conversion, you're regenerated. You were born again and you now lack nothing because now you are in Christ. Second, I love what 2 Peter 1.4 says. 2 Peter 1.4 says that we are now partakers of the divine nature. Now, it's not saying that we become gods or that we have some deity. It's not what it's saying, but what it's saying is that we grow in God, godliness. What it's saying is that at conversion, the Holy Spirit dwells in us and we begin to become conformed to the image of Christ every day through our sanctification. It is amazing how our life has changed. Just think about where you were. I think it's safe to say that you were lacking much. But now in Christ, we are made full and it's connected to who Christ is. It's because in Christ, the fullness of duty dwells that we too can be made complete, that we too can be made full. Now, what else can you add to the person of Christ? What else can you add to his fullness, all the fullness of deity? There's nothing to. So if you have Christ, then you're made full. You're complete. And so this is the necessity of the personhood of Christ. This is the necessity of the fullness of his deity. It's directly connected to that we are made complete in Christ. But there's another aspect of our deity that Paul brings out, and that is his supremacy. So Paul writes, he is a head over all rule and authority, the end of verse 10. And false teachers were coming up to Colossians and saying, you have to worship these angels, right? You go down to verse 18, the worship of angels. He was having them worship angels, and Paul's coming and telling him, no, you know who Christ is? Christ is above any angel. Christ is above any ruler, above any authority. We saw this in chapter 1, that Christ is the creator of all. 
that he created all things and he created all things for himself. It was created for Christ. Why would someone ever worship a lower being? Christ is a Lord of lords. Christ is a king of kings. No one comes close. He is the fullness of deity. He is very God of very God. This is the person of Christ. Now, like I said, we're, we're going to spend most of the time on verses 8 to 10. And this is a person of Christ. And I wanted to just go through a flyover of the rest of the verses, 11 through 15. This is the work of Christ and is directly tied to the person of Christ. Notice how often he says, in him. Verse 11 says, and in him you were circumcised. Verse 12, you were buried with him, raised up with him. There's a direct connection to who Christ is and the work that Christ does. Verse 9 we saw in him, but that's referring to his nature. In the following verses, it refers to the union that the believers have with Christ. And Paul just goes rapid-fire succession here. In verses 11 through 12, he talks about that Christ was, had, had died, was buried, and was resurrected. That is the circumcision of Christ. And it is not a physical circumcision, right? Paul stresses that in verse 11. Not that you were circumcised, uh, that you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. We're not looking at an outward sign here. We're not looking at some tradition or some, some physical act. It's not baptism. It's not coming to church. It has to do with what Christ did. It has to do with that, the fact that he died for you and that he was buried and that he was res- resurrected. And in his resurrection, we have newness of life. In verses 13 to 14, we see a a second aspect here, that his sacrificial death on this cross raised us us from the dead and made us alive in Christ. I love verse 14. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, while was hostile to us, he has taken out of the way and has nailed it to the cross. That huge debt that you owed, your sin, God put it on the cross and the blood of Christ covers it, blots it out. No other Savior could offer you that forgiveness. If Christ was not fully God, you would not have that forgiveness in Christ. It is only the incarnate God, Jesus Christ, that could take that full penalty of sin. And the last aspect we see here in verse 15, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So at the cross, God has victory. Hebrews 2.14. Hebrews 2.14 says that through death, Christ rendered powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. There is no victory for Satan. There's no victory for the demonic powers. Christ has conquered death. Satan no longer has power over the Christian. And if Satan has no, longer, has no power, if Christ is above all rulers and authorities, then what can separate us from the love of God? Paul writes this in Romans 8. But in all things we are over... We, 
overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, no powers, no heights, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, with Christ as the supreme, as Christ above all powers and all rulers, as Christ as fully God, nothing can separate us from his love. He has complete victory. And so we have seen that the person of Christ, which is clearly taught in this passage, he's fully man, fully God, the person of Christ tells us that the work of Christ is complete, that we could add nothing to it. Now, end with this. My exhortation to you and to myself is that we must make Christ our treasure, that nothing else should satisfy but to know Christ more, to know the depths of his personhood, to know who he is, to know that he's alive today and that he's with you today. And if you read the scriptures, read Isaiah 53, read Philippians 2, and you'll be moved to worship him all the more. And maybe today you don't know him. Maybe today you can't say that you've been made complete in Christ. Well, Christ invites you. Christ says, come, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. If you would just turn to him now. And for those of us in Christ, we are made complete. We have everything. What else would you want that's not in Christ? He is our treasure. He is our truth. Christ is our all. And we could do nothing to add to his work. All we have is Christ. All we have is Christ, and in Christ, we have all. Let's pray. Father, there's such deep truth here. As I look to the Son, as I look to the incarnate God, as the one who became flesh and dwelt among us, Lord, I am humbled that this God will come down and and die on the cross and offer me this perfect salvation, this complete work. Lord, we thank you and we praise you and we glorify you. Father, I pray that you would make this more real to us. Make the sacrifice that that Christ made all the more real, that that we would want to live for him more, that we would want to glorify him more, that we would want to know him more. Father, I pray that you would make us bold to go out to this world that has this false teaching, this, this philosophy that goes against you, that we would be bold and proclaim Christ, that many will come to know him, and that you would get all the glory. Praise Jesus' name, amen.